This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Hey, everybody. If you're listening to this episode on release day, it is December 28th, 2017. So lucky for you, there's still a few days to go to sign up for the Coffee Shop Writers Group and get the December sign-up bonus, which is a free tarot reading with me about your writing project. All you have to do to get this bonus is to sign up for the group at carolinedonahue.com slash coffee shop by midnight on December 31st, 2017 Pacific Standard Time. So those of you on the East Coast get a few extra hours to um, agonize and deliberate. So I'm hoping to see you in the coffee shop. You can sign up until January 12th and or until there are 12 people in the group, at which point it's closed. So now let's get on with the episode. This is episode 83. My guest this week is Anu Partnan, the author of The Nordic Theory of Everything, In Search of a Better Life. She's a journalist originally from Finland who's now based in New York City. She's lived in the U.S. since 2008, and her work has appeared in the New York Times and The Atlantic. She's also a regular commentator on the BBC's radio program, Business Matters. She's worked at Fortune magazine as well as a visiting reporter through the Innovation Journalism Fellowship at Stanford University. In Finland, she's held many positions ranging from managing editor to columnist, features writer to news reporter, and lecturer to on-air commentator. I knew I had to have a new on because I read her book and I have not been able to stop talking about it since. I think there's so much in her book. I not only wanted to talk about the process of researching it, having all the statistics that she has in it, but also the implications her book about social services and support that people can expect in the U.S. versus in other countries, particularly in Scandinavia, um, how that impacts your life and the decision people make as to whether or not they want to write. And so I was delighted that she was willing to come on the show, and I know you will be as thrilled as I was to hear her thoughts Uh, which are more optimistic in the end than I thought they would be about what we can do and steps we can take to support writing and expanding people's options as writers in this country and elsewhere. So I know you're going to enjoy Anu as much as I did. And here we go with the episode. Hi, Anu. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. I, uh, we spoke about this just now before coming on, but I think anyone listening to this episode at this point will know about my my one-woman quest to make everyone read your book. So it's especially um, exciting to get to talk to you about the process of writing it. And I don't know, there's just many, many layers. So I'm I'm thinking what we could start with maybe is how did you first decide, being a journalist, that you wanted to write a book on the topic rather than, you know, continuing to write articles? Well, I think my... Um background and approach to journalism or writing is maybe sometimes a little different than what people expect. I have always been a journalist. I studied journalism at a university in Finland, and uh, my first job was at a national newspaper interning there, so I've been writing steadily all my career, but I've never been the person to write diaries or to um, dream of writing when I was young, I actually find writing very, very painful. <laughs> I often think that it's hell and I'm like, why am I in this session because I find it so painful. But I write because I really 
feel that writing is the best way of communicating, um, especially sort of complex ideas or about our lives in a more sort of deeper way. I know people process information differently and some people really like watching videos. For me, reading has always been the way that I can really understand things and you know you read and you can go back and you're confused or you forget you go back a few pages and read again and that works for my thought process so partly that's why I want to write as well because I feel like it's a great way of communicating even though the process of writing for me personally is all painful but yeah so before I moved to the United States I had never written a book I always worked as a, a daily journalist first in news reporting and then a little bit longer feature article and finally monthly magazine so I was sort of slowly moving constantly to longer and longer articles and maybe a little bit away from sort of objective news reporting and more to um, feature writing and, and narrative and fiction. And so then when I came to the United States, at first I sort of continued down that path. I wrote articles, finished magazines and newspapers. But it did seem to me fairly quickly, there was so much going on in my head. I think anybody who has spent time in another country knows that it's exhilarating, but it's also confusing and you get anxious and you try, you, you're constantly comparing, of course, differences between the countries and you're boring all your friends and family and anybody who comes into contact with you because you're always immediately telling of how, oh, well, in Finland, we do it this way. And everybody's like, yeah, shut up. <laughs> and I sometimes, I don't know if listeners watch the Golden Girls, but I always felt like I was Rose from that show. And she was always coming up with these crazy stories in St. Olaf, which I guess was somewhere in Sweden or something. Some crazy thing happened. And she was telling these stories and her American roommates were rolling their eyes. So I kind of felt like that often. But since I am a journalist, and writing is my profession, and of course, I found that there were really serious implications to these differences between countries. It's not all just silly stories or cultural differences. A lot of it has to do with the way the countries are arranged, what kinds of policies they have. And so then it just started to seem to me like, well, there's definitely seriously something that I could write about here. And because it is so complicated and and talking about how countries work and what life is like in different countries, like that's a big task. So it just felt like, well, it's a task worthy of a book. Even a magazine article could not really get to it. No, not unless you had a regular column. I mean, I yeah. could see a regular column. Yeah, I'm actually now writing a regular column for a Finnish magazine. So I think that works well. I kind of write about the United States in many ways and, and different topics here. And so, yeah, when it's continuing, you can kind of look at different um, aspects. But but otherwise, trying to do one big article, I'm sure would not have been able to capture a lot of it. Were you, I mean, for those listening, I mean, we've described the book in the show notes, but for, for a general overview, I would say my experience of reading the book was that it was a very kind of broken down, clear explanation of the differences between general social policy in the U.S. and in the Nordic countries, particularly in Finland. And in reading it, I found it was one of those books where I actually at one point just was yelling at the book, like, what? Um, as a resident of Los Angeles, I think I was particularly shocked because there was a comparison between how many administrators take care of the entire Finnish education system versus the county of Los Angeles. And it was something like five times the number of administrators for just L.A. County versus the entire country. And I just <laughs> I had to pause for a minute. And 
I think one of the things I loved about the book and that I thought was incredibly effective was that you were really great at mixing case studies of here's what someone, a friend of mine experienced when navigating childcare or the expense of having a baby in the US. And here was my friend's experience in Finland. And that really um, crystallized the experience. And I'm wondering how it was for you to have those conversations with people and to figure out what the differences were and how you were left feeling, particularly as someone who had left Finland and was currently living in the US. Yeah, I, of course, first, when I started thinking about writing a book like this, um, it felt like a huge undertaking and almost impossible because as a writer, you have, so comparing two countries, I looked at, of course, sort of anecdotally my own life in the US and what my own life had been like in Finland. And, and of course, like I said, like for a long time, I talked a lot about these differences. And whenever you get a group of expats together, of course, all they do is talk about the differences. But then when you really start trying to understand where do these differences come from, it's very complicated. You have to understand social policies in different countries, laws in different countries. You feel like, well, I have to know some of the history. Why is it this way here? Why is it not that way? And the one thing that I found really interesting but also challenging is that you have to understand people's logic in different countries. Why do they think one way? Why do Americans think that that the government is usually the enemy? And why do Nordic people not think that the government is the enemy? The government is us or, or and be a friend and where does that come from and I think that's often um, really difficult for us when we look at other countries to really understand the logic and, and what I really um, discovered along the way is that most of the time we have logical reasons to what we're thinking even though it's not even though of it, when you hear somebody else from another country for example describing how things are in that country it can seem crazy to you and if they give you a reason why um, uh, thinking of, well, for a Nordic person, often American approach to government doesn't make any sense. Like, it's very hard to understand why does an American person, like, there have been these surveys where a pretty big part of Americans says that they need to own a gun in case there will be um, a government, you know, takeover or coup or or their rights are going to be taken away, so they have to be able to defend themselves from the government. From a Nordic person perspective, that's insane it's like what are you talking about (laughs) it's not insane if you look at a lot of countries many americans have come from or their families have come from the state dictatorships and of course it's true that government can can be the enemy it's just that it's not always the enemy but so these were a lot of the things i stole and i really wanted to understand and try to understand and get to it and of course talking to people (laughs) is a it's something that you really want to do and um not only, well, the, the aspect of asking them, so how did it work? You had a baby, what happened then? What happened then? Who was your doctor? Who paid for it? Uh, when did you go to the doctor's office? What did, what did they do there? The, these were the questions that were really was asking people, like very sort of detailed questions about how it all worked for them. But then, of course, also, if you ask them about the views of the system, like, do you think it works well? How do you think it should work? Um, then you're trying to get to the logic of why they think the way they do, why our countries arrange the way they do. But for me, it was really interesting. And of course, I struggled a little bit trying to figure out, so should I actually interview my friends? Like, <laughs> in journalism, usually that's a no-no. But I just felt that since I was planning to anyway write about my own experience, because I felt like it's 
it just makes it easier to understand the consequences of policies. And since I did have friends in Nordic countries and friends in America who had fairly similar lives in the sense that they were all somewhat educated, they had children, you know, they were fairly typical examples, I think, of family lives in countries. So it seemed natural to me to talk to them. Of course, I also interviewed people that I didn't know in advance. I asked friends to recommend someone else or I approached people. Simply one person that I interviewed who um, who had cancer in America, I just kind of read, was reading an online conversation about people's experiences and she had written to that conversation and then I had sort of tracked her down and interviewed her. So a lot of the people interviewed in the book, some I knew personally and some were just strangers that I somehow came across and interviewed. One of the really strong um, impacts that the book had as I was reading it, which was incredibly validating, is that I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. Like, particularly when talking about your experience of how stressful it was to know that you no longer had your finished health coverage. Like when they sent you that letter and said, okay, you've been gone long enough. You're going to have to do this through the U.S. now. And just how devastating that was. I think that really brought home how much stress and strain the way the healthcare system works in the U.S. puts on the average person. And it was so validating to read that. So for one thing, I want to thank you for including your personal story. And I'm wondering... um, Did you find a lot of people who had aha moments in the course of having conversations with you? Like, oh, you mean other people don't do it this way or it could be different? (laughs) Ah, good question. I'm not sure if I really, if those moments came up when I was interviewing people, because of course I didn't do so much talking then. I was more asking them and listening to, but I had certainly had a lot of people um, say that after they read the book or when I'm given talks and then they come after me. Somebody just came uh, came up to me after a talk I gave. I often talk about also of how, um, how for someone from a Nordic country, how for me life in America seemed so complicated in many respects. Healthcare, of course, is a perfect example that it, it it's complicated. It takes up a lot of your time, energy, money. It makes you anxious. But I think a lot of things in the United States we tend to think that government services are bureaucratic, but in the United States, many services that in the Nordic countries, you can get fairly easily. They're just there for you. The government provides them, and if you need them, they're there for you. And in fact, the bureaucracy involved is minimal because there are no bills and there are no forms, and you don't have to do the research to look for the right place to go to or whatnot. They're sort of easily available. Um, So that makes life in the United States very complicated from somebody's perspective who's lived in a different country. And I think Americans don't, of course, they don't necessarily know this, that it could be different because you live in one country and this is the norm. And Americans, one of the traits that I really admire about Americans is that Americans are always very quick to find fault in themselves. Like there's this cultural norm that you're not supposed to really blame others. If you're failing or struggling, then probably it's your fault. Do something about it. And in some ways it's great. There's this really strong sense of, well, if you have some complaints, then do something about it. And that's in a way a good advice. But in many cases, you can't really do something about it as an individual. You can go to yoga as much as you want, but if your healthcare situation is super expensive and complicated, the yoga is not going to help. You need you, you need to have um, a good policy that helps everyone. And so I think this is just something that a lot of Americans have not really realized, that in other countries people don't have to spend so much time and energy on these things because the system can work better. 
and so then that can be an eye opener when when they read the book or or hear me talk and are like huh oh really <laughs> it's not this, this way everywhere <laughs> yeah i think it's true it just it doesn't it's so complicated and you even like i remember being a kid and being like, I don't understand what the word deductible means. Like, why yeah. do we keep talking about deductible? Exactly. And, and other things of like, you know, looking at people, friends of mine who have young children now deciding like, I had one who at her own employer offers childcare, but she would have had to apply before she knew she was going to even try to get pregnant in order yeah. to be on the list to get access to it at the time the child showed up. So it's yeah. like there are all of these systems and you just kind of say, oh, well, that's annoying as an American. But when you hear like, oh, you could just, you know, go to a really well-run government-sponsored center in Finland, you're like, oh, yeah. I never even thought that seemed like a fairy tale, basically, um, that that would be possible. And Yeah. And a lot of this, when you were asking first about the, the interviewing people and so on, I really wanted to, because I think a lot of these policies the discussion around them can be kind of abstract. I think a lot of Americans kind of have an idea that, oh, Nordic countries, you know, they work differently. Oh, they maybe have childcare or not. But I don't think people often know exactly the details, like like how much does it cost? How do you get in? How does it work? So I felt it was really important to include those sort of personal um, anecdotes and stories on top of the more bigger framework and abstract policy to just show that this is you know, you, the daycare is there for you, for every child it's there, and you don't have to do anything about it. Of course, once you have a child, maybe you fill in a form to uh, let them know that my child will be starting daycare next fall, but that's it. Whereas in, just like you're saying, in the United States, I think for a lot of parents, just finding the right daycare, figuring out what it costs, figuring out is it good, uh, is it employer provided or not, uh, it just becomes very complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I think one of the things that really was great about the book was that it made it easy to understand a topic that I realized I didn't even fully understand in my own country, even though I'm interacting with it on a regular basis. You just kind of accept as an American, well, there's all of this fine print and I'm not really going to get to understand all of it and it may bite me in the butt at some point, but I just have to go on because I've run out of time today to deal with this. Um, yeah, that was my experience, especially with healthcare, like you were saying about deductibles and co-pays. And these were things that I had never heard of in Finland. Like you don't, you don't have to worry about deductibles or, or uh, co-insurance. Uh, what the hell is co-insurance? I, I didn't understand any of it. And, and a lot of it also, when I first got my American health insurance, you know, I was reading the booklet they sent me, the thick booklet, because I felt like, well, I have to understand what this is about. Of course, it turned out it's impossible. You can't understand it. And it's not going to tell you because it's not going to tell you each individual disease. And I had that experience that I started ta asking, you know, American people that I met or knew around me. So how do you deal with it? How do you know that your health insurance actually covers what you need it to cover? And like you're saying, my experience was that a lot of people were like, well, I don't know because you can't know because it's too complicated. So I'm just hoping that it will, but we'll see. And from as a Nordic person, to me, that was really crazy like what are you kidding me like this is how people live their lives that this extremely important service it's kind of 
you just have to shrug and hope that it'll be okay. And often it's not okay. And that, again, seemed crazy to me. But of course, that's the way it is, because it's so complicated. You, there's no way for you to understand all of it. I mean, it reminds me of there was a movie, An Inconvenient Truth, in conjunction with a mm. book that Al Gore wrote. And I think about this image all the time, which was, you can't boil a frog by just throwing it in a boiling pot of water because they'll jump right out because they'll see it's intolerable. Mm. But if you put it in like a cool pot of water and then slowly turn the heat up, they don't notice and they get kind of lulled into it. And I think in some ways that's what these how these systems come in, in into play. It's like they make small changes over long periods of time and then you don't even notice. And then you have a book like yours that says, wait a minute, we're, we're boiling a frog here. Um, it's a great the frog book. is boiling, and so I think. Well, I have two. I have two directions I want to go in here, and I'm. I, I want to go into both of them equally. So that's the challenge. Um, I suppose one of them feeds into the other. So if somebody has read this book and is, you know, like me, yelling at it, looking at Finnish immigration policy, seeing if there's a Finnish tutor nearby, they could learn Finnish and just leave. What do you think, in, in in the course of writing the book, I'm sure that in some ways you can't help but have it turn into a movement based on, you know, all these people wanting to talk about it, it's selling so well, which is amazing, and then people showing up, you know, to talks to learn more. Do you have ideas about what we could do? Because one of the things that was the most hopeful about it was, you know, Finnish, Finnish policy wasn't always this way, particularly with education. Like, that's changed over the past, I think it was... 40 or 50 years, quite a bit. So what what do you think people can do at this point, having read it and feeling fired up and, you know, ready to do something different other than, you know, expatriate? I mean, that is, of course, the challenge. So how do you go from when you have these ideas of how this country should change or could change? How, how do you go about it? And of course, it's difficult. And um, I sometimes feel like, I wish I had the time and energy and perhaps the personality to like start a huge website campaign and become a leader of a movement. But, you know, I'm a journalist writer. That's sort of what I do. I'm not necessarily the, the political type who, who fires up people then further on. But I do, of course, I really enjoy um, going around and giving talks and, and uh, discussing with people in real life, getting people together to think about what we could do. And um, I was just in Vermont and in Chicago in these events. And what I find is that a lot of these changes can and do happen in the states or cities. And a lot of people clearly are involved in either grassroots organizations, just citizens organizations that are pushing, for example, in Vermont, um, I gave several talks and, and one of them was arranged by a group called Rights and Democracy in Vermont. And these, and it was, there were several groups that came together to arrange the event and they are pushing in Vermont for raises in minimum wages and for paid parental leave and for universal health care and so on. And then we had another discussion where there were Vermont legislators joining a panel with me who are also in the legislature um, going to or, or proposing policy changes like these. So I think really the the difficulty in a way is it was interesting actually when I had a book proposal and um, so that's the phase where I had written a few sample chapters and I had created sort of an 
uh, outline of what the book would be. And then my agent was sort of showing it to publishers to get me a book deal and hopefully some money so that I could actually do the work of writing the whole book. And so then I would get responses from publishers. And, and there were several American publishers who, who were interested and wanted to publish the book, but of course several also turned it down. This is sort of normal. But um, I still remember that one of them kind of said, and I think several maybe echoed that, that this is all fine and well, but um, this book is problematic because the reader cannot go home and immediately change something in their life. And I think that's why America is sort of the promised land of self-help books, of course, because in a way you read something and you would want to go home and immediately feel like you can do something in your own life, change the way you behave or change or try something new and then good things would follow. And the challenge in a way is with a book like this or thinking like this, that my whole point is that it is not about you only as an individual. It is about the structures that have to be changed through legislation or policy. So in that way, it's a challenge. And, and what I can really offer is that you really need to get involved. At least you have to vote, but also perhaps get involved in different citizens groups or, or go to discussions with legislators and really, or start, you know, um, campaigning yourself and become a legislator to change things. And then, of course, to many Americans, this seems impossible or depressing because you think that, well, politics is broken and nothing's going to happen. But in fact, I feel like I see so many positive signs in different states. I live in New York City. And so in New York City, we now have a new paid parental leave policy that is going to go into effect uh, starting next year and slowly get um, get longer the period of time you get you can get paid from a social insurance fund, essentially, while you're on your um, paid parental leave. The New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, fairly quickly, in only a couple of years, instituted, he expanded um, public pre-K to all four-year-olds. And that happened in, I think it was maybe two years and it was up and running. And now all four-year-olds in New York City have public pre-K and, and it's working well and parents are happy. And now he has said that, okay, the next step, what he's going to do is expand it to all three-year-olds. So changes like these can happen and they do happen around the country. I mean, there are several paid parental leave schemes in Washington, D.C. and other places. Um, universal health care, of course, that's like a, a big difficult topic but I think also like there we have a uh, in different states movements and, and I think we can certainly work on that yeah I think the state level seems more manageable in particular just thinking about you know the size of Finland versus the yeah. size of states in terms of both population and the the size of government it does seem more optimistic so people could get involved at a state level yeah and i think a lot of americans also and readers too can have a very understandable reaction to that okay this is fine and well you have the nordic countries they're small and they're homogenous and you know they're very different so that's great that they are doing so well but how how can you even compare the united states so my take on that is that, of course, it's true that the United States is vast, big country, 300 million people, um, people from different backgrounds. But you do have a lot of states that are much more homogenous than even Finland that is quite homogenous. And many states and cities that has, have populations or school systems that um, are smaller in terms of population or student body or whatnot than the Nordic countries are. So in that sense, the local level can be a great starting point. And of course, then the hope would be that then it could spread, spread from state to state. In Canada, when they first started um, their single-payer healthcare system, it also started 
in like a province or provinces and then when it, they see it, saw that it worked then it started to spread and then the whole country ended up you know having the same system yeah it could be so exciting to see that i mean there was something on the bill even this year in california for a single payer system that they're starting to work on so i was very excited to see that as an option that we could um that we could start that kind of change so that feels really good and then the other thing I wanted to talk about, because the thing that has really stuck with me and has impacted me every day is like, I see people walking around and I see people kind of going about their everyday lives. And, you know, I'm interacting with people in different ways during every day. And I keep thinking, would this person be doing what they're doing if their job was not the source of their healthcare? <laughs> and you know, if those two things weren't tied together, or how would these people would would our choices be drastically different if we didn't have to worry about okay, as one partner in a in a relationship, if the childcare wasn't so expensive, would couples have to talk about okay, which one of us is going to keep working, or how much money do I have to make in order for it to be worth it for me to keep working because of the expense of childcare? And as I'm thinking about all of those questions, I'm wondering about people who want to do things like write, who want to be writers. And, you know, that that is unfortunately one of the, the less certain or less structured in most cases professions. And do you think that that's impacting who we might be hearing from in terms of who's writing, who feels it's okay to write or is willing to take the time because they're not supported by these social policies? Absolutely. I mean, that is such a great point. And I think about that often when I read American um, journalism or nonfiction, and of course, fiction as well, uh, who is who is able to write. And of course, there might be this idea that, well, if you want to write, you have a day job, and then you, uh, you know, write in the evenings or weekends, uh, that might be possible for, for example, for fiction. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like fiction is super easy. But I mean, that if you do um, journalism or nonfiction that requires extensive research, it requires maybe travel, it requires meeting people, interviewing people, looking people, maybe going to archives, going to libraries. This is very hard to do. I guess you can if you're a person with super stamina to do when you if you have a day job. So of course, it really limits the people who are able to do it. And because it doesn't like very few writers manage to really make a living and less and less so these days. It used to be perhaps a little bit easier when magazines would pay better. But now, of course, we all know that journalism is in trouble and a lot of magazines have folded and these traditional writing jobs or freelance assignments that would support you, even if you were working on a book, uh, these days they're getting, um, it's just harder and harder to, to make a living writing. And then on top of that, you have things like healthcare, which in America often um, is offered by an employer or it's very expensive if you buy it as a freelancer. That was another surprise to me because in the Nordic countries, healthcare is um, dealt like police or uh, fire fire department in the United States. So it is paid from taxpayer funds or public schools in the United States. So it, it's pay, paid by tax taxes and then everybody has access to it. There are public healthcare centers. The doctors, nurses are paid by the government. There are private doctors as well if you choose. But in any case, it has nothing to do with your work. Everybody has the right to this health care. Some employers offer maybe perks and benefits. Uh, you can go and see a primary care physician, private and one, and employer pays for it. But so for a writer in Finland, 
there are other challenges such as that Finland is small, so the potential readership is very small. So in that sense, you might actually have more opportunity in the US to, you know, sell more books or have bigger audience naturally than in Finland. But in Finland, if you are a writer or any type of freelancer or an entrepreneur, your family will anyway have healthcare. It has nothing to do with your income or your job. So you and your family will have health care. Your children will have daycare, regardless of your income. Your, the, the public daycare centers in Finland, every child has a right to a spot in a public daycare center. And um, it's paid on a sliding scale. So if you don't make any money, you don't pay anything. And even the wealthiest, it's capped at about $300 a month for even the wealthiest people. And of course, compare that to America, where oh my God. in more than half of the states, it's $10,000 a year. In a place like Washington, D.C., it's $20,000 a year. So how, how can you do that if you're writing and you're not even maybe making, you know, you're barely making $20,000 a year? So it really limits, the, you know, your options. Either you have to be independently wealthy or you have to have a partner, spouse who makes good money. And then, again, that already creates a sort of a dependency or power balance in your relationship that would not exist in a Nordic country where where even if you make little money, at least these very essential services that your family and you yourself need are covered. And for me, of course, I, I live and breathe that every day here. Um, healthcare has been the biggest challenge for me and my husband because he's also a journalist and a writer. And for most of the time, we're both, we've both been freelancers and we've bought our health insurance uh, from the Obamacare exchange, but it's still really expensive. And we just had a baby, which makes it more expensive because then you have to pay more for three people. So in fact, now my husband took a job. And of course, it's great that he got a job, but he took a job to, again, provide health insurance for the whole family. Even though otherwise, you know, we were we're both published book authors and professional writers and you, we make money. It's just that the health insurance is such a costly and such an important service that it's you really have to make a lot of money. And that makes just staying being a writer hurt. And now, of course, I also struggle with the daycare very concretely. My daughter is now almost four months old. And until now, I have taken care of her at home. And I certainly would like to longer. I mean, I, I'm breastfeeding and whatnot. But here is the dilemma. We live in New York City. Daycare is extremely expensive. So to justify it, I would have to figure out that, okay, I need to make enough money as a writer to justify paying. Uh, presumably, I would need to make more a month than I pay for daycare. And I might be able to, I might not. It's very hard to know as a writer in advance or while you're working or trying to kick off a project. You don't make money immediately. You only make money when you sell the book or when the book is out. And that can be years from now. So it really, it really is a challenge. I think, yeah, I think it's just, we think about it on a very granular level. Like, this is annoying right now. I have to make all these phone calls and figure out if this thing is covered or this thing is not covered. Like, I feel like that sort of thing people think about because they deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. But then we start thinking about, I mean, at least I have been obsessing about it since reading the book, like what books are we not getting to read because someone yeah. is in your position and they're not, you know, hell bent on writing whatever book 
or, and as you said, like with nonfiction, like it's timely also, like there's time pressure. If you don't, if you only have like 45 minutes a day to do copious amounts of research, then by the time you get that done, it's going to be five years from now. And the topic is going to be completely different. So we're just (laughs) missing that thing that you could have written. And then I think of other things like people who might be inventing things or uncovering issues, or even people who could innovate in a way that would improve life for everyone that we're just missing out on that. Because we're not investing in potential that could come from everywhere. Yeah, and that is definitely, that was one of the paradoxes of of America, really, because the United States is, you know, small business owners, entrepreneurs are celebrated in the United States, rightly so. But then the social structures actually do not really support them, or they only support those who somehow already have the resources or funds or the ability to invest their time and energy into a project that not, might not make a living for them until further down the road or never. And so especially, exactly, the voices that we hear, how how many writers do we have who come from a, a background that maybe they're poor or you know, if you immediately have to make a living, you also can't do unpaid internships, for example, in the media, which then perhaps children whose parents can support them while they're doing internships can. So it immediately skews the voices that we hear. And it's it's somewhat frustrating. I, I sometimes think when I read, I really love many American newspapers, the New York Times, I greatly admire them. But at the same time, I do feel like it. you can kind of detect it, you read these columns that people write and then they in passing make a you know reference to going to their summer house somewhere and immediately if if you're not a person who has access to a summer house you you kind of immediately uh uh-huh okay so this person somehow has access to these resources that i don't and it's alienating too i think for a lot of readers you start feeling immediately that oh these are these you know east coast elites or whatnot because you feel like their life is different from yours because a lot of americans certainly don't have access to these things so i think it also it's a shame that we lose voices that should be heard that could contribute to the conversation but it also alienates readers if you feel like well these writers are not really representing my life absolutely i mean i think about i mean i don't want to go like i'm already getting fairly political on this but it's like we think about our recent election in the us and everyone's like how do we not know how do we not yeah. know that how these people were feeling disenfranchised? And like, well, because they're working all the time and they don't have any time to write an op-ed piece yeah. or something and say, this is really hard for me and I'm having a rough time. Or people who are shut yeah. out of the conversation are shut out in more ways than like, oh, you don't write the way, you know, you're not writing with commas in the right place. It's like, yeah. well, yeah, if they all went to the same school and if they all had the same education, then everybody would have, you know, the equal skill set to get something published. And but we're not yeah. giving that to people. Yeah, that is a really important point. And the election and the media um, coverage of it was a perfect example. In fact, that was one area where I was I was quite disappointed in the New York Times, which is, of course, my hometown paper. And I read it and I've written articles for them. And like I said, I really love them and admire them. They do fantastic investigative reporting, all of that. But during the election, I myself, um, I I actually didn't have a strong opinion between Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. Obviously, anybody who reads the book can probably tell that I'm probably voting for Democrats and not Republicans. But at the time, I felt like, well, the policies that Bernie Sanders was 
proposing from a Nordic perspective, they are not crazy by any means. It was like, well, yeah, this is what Nordic people live with every day. It's total reality. If you combine the Nordic countries, their population is about 25 million people, 26 million people, whatnot. And these policies work for all these people. So it's not insane. But I think the New York Times, a lot of their writing um, in their opinion pages really, to me, seemed to treat the message to me seemed like it was, well, all these Bernie Sanders supporters just have to grow up and become adults and understand that it's not realistic what he's saying. And so it's not worth considering. And Hillary Clinton is realistic and we should go with her. And even I, who am, uh, you know, educated, wide, live in New York City, in many ways, probably privileged, many ways similar to the people who work at the New York Times, even I just felt like that was alienating to me. I was like, well, there are so many people who want change, whether they're Trump supporters or they're Bernie Sanders supporters. And these people struggle and they may have completely opposite views of what we should do about this problem. Trump supporters, of course, many felt like, well, we have to close the borders and and stop free trade and and whatnot to get back to where we were and make a good living. And then Sanders supporters felt like we should have more Nordic policies. But to me, it seemed obvious that completely justified that people had these concerns. But then a lot of journalists who perhaps themselves did not so acutely feel that pain. (laughs) I don't know. I I mean, I don't know why, but it seemed like they were not taking seriously these concerns. And then they were all super baffled by what happened. I think it's a conversation that needs to keep happening. I hope everybody who's listening reads the book because... No matter what your politics are, I think they're questions that are important to consider and how it's one I've just kept asking ever since I've read it. It's like, how would my life be different if these things were different? Would that, would that change choices that I've made? Would that change opportunities? Would it change the books that I'm seeing in bookstores when I go in? And I think it would. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is also... You know, when we think about things like happiness, uh, who is a happy person? How are we happy? There's these studies that compare different countries in happiness. And it can seem totally ridiculous because, of course, we often, especially in the United States, think that that happiness is something that comes uh, from within, that no matter what your circumstances around you, if you have a positive attitude or you appreciate the things you have, uh, then you can be happy. Sure, I think that's totally true up to a point. But there are also big structural um, choices or policies that directly affect our happiness. And this is not just just me saying this. Uh, there's, for example, this one type of study that has been done for a long time where, where the researchers ask people who have children and who don't have children in different countries like what their happiness levels are. And so typically in most countries, people who have children say that they are happier than people who don't have children. But in the United States, it's the opposite. People who have children say that they are less happy than people who don't have children. And of course, that's kind of sad to think that, oh, dear, like people have children and then they're less happy. But then some researchers tried to look into this. Well, why is this? Why is there this difference between the United States and, and other countries like the Nordic countries? And what it came down to was basically affordable daycare, paid sick days, paid vacation days. And so these directly affect how much we feel we're in control of our lives, how mu- how we feel we can make choices, how much we feel like we can be there for our children. Can we spend time with our children? Can we take care of them when they're sick? Can we take care of ourselves when we're sick? If you don't have these things, it really 
creates stress and anxiety and it's not all in your head even though we often think that it is in our head yeah that was huge to me I mean I think there was something and this is the power of a book and people taking risks and writing about things like you did is to share with people like okay if a system is really challenging the way you can operate in your day-to-day life then you're not crazy if you're having a hard time you don't yeah you don't have a, you know, you don't have mental illness. You're just dealing with a situation that is not working for you. Yeah, exactly. It's not all your fault. I think it's, it's admirable to look at yourself and try to figure out if there's things I can change and not just blame the system or blame other people, but only up to a a point. If it goes on too long, then it just creates a, a situation where people are miserable and blaming themselves and feeling like failures, even though, really the system is failing them and making it really hard to manage and then you compare yourself to other people and you're like oh well they can make it work why can't I well uh, to me it seems that often in the United States the answer is actually that well because they have resources that you don't and maybe it's not obvious and you don't know that maybe their parents are helping to support them maybe they have a trust fund maybe their spouse has a really good job you know they might have these advantages that are not so obvious immediately but then when you compare yourself to them and you don't see those those advantages, you don't know about them, you're like, well, they can make it work. It must be my fault that I can't make it work. Or maybe they're crying at home and you have no idea that it's not working for them either. <laughs> That's true too. I think Americans uh, have a tendency to put on a brave face and because, of course, nobody likes like somebody who's complaining or whining. So people tend to be very uh, sort of energetic and seem like they've got it under control. But yeah, exactly. They might be super anxious at home alone. Yeah. Well... I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about this because I hope it inspires anyone else who's dealing with an issue where they look at it and say, huh, this seems a little nuts to me that, that you keep investigating it. Even if you, Mm. you know, even if it's challenging and and hard, write a book about it. I think it has, really has, or at least an article or a blog post or something, whatever you can manage with the time that you have, share it with other people because as we're seeing, like you talked about, then you can start to see changes in policy and people can put pressure on politicians so they can vote for different people. And if we know there are options, and I think that the way that this comes from is people writing about it. I think it's really easy for people to feel, feel like, oh, who am I to write this book? Or this is really self-indulgent. I'm sitting here writing this story. And it's not. It's It's important. And I think we need to hear from everybody. So... I want to yeah, thank you. if I can, to close, I once um, did an article for Finnish magazine. I interviewed Jonathan Franzen uh, on his book, and he said something that really stayed with me when I was working on the book. Um, I think we were talking about social media, and he's, of course, famous and kind of notorious for, for not liking social media. <laughs> but, but he was saying that, yeah, that the problem today is that everybody's talking all the time. There's social media, there's blog posts, comments, opinions, tweets, everything's coming at you. And so you feel like, well, if what I'm feeling or thinking was important, surely, or other people would feel that, surely somebody would have already said it because there's so much talk everywhere. And if nobody has said it, then it probably means that I am alone with this. I am the only one who thinks about this. And then you feel like, well, why shouldn't like I shouldn't write about this because nobody else seems to care or if they would care, then they would have written about it. But then he said about himself that then and he was talking about feelings like shame or, you know, frustration or failure that you tend 
to think that other people have it, got it together and you're just the one who doesn't. And then he felt like in his writing, when he writes about these feelings, people respond so gigantically. Of course, he's a very successful writer that he has felt that, oh, okay. So actually, so many things go unsaid. Even though there's so much talk, a lot of important things still are not said. So I kept thinking of that when I was working on the book. Like, of course, as a writer, you start feeling like you're in this black hole and this gigantic project you're working on. And is this even worth it? And is anybody interested? And does any of this that I'm saying, does it make sense? Is it important? Does anybody want to hear it? And I often thought about what he said. I thought, yeah, it's so true that, that there's all this talk. And if I feel like some things I have not heard, nobody has said these, but I feel like it's important to say them, it is perfectly possible that they are important things and other people are thinking about them, but nobody has just said it, not said it yet, even if there's so much talk or seems to be so much talk everywhere. I, I totally agree. Because if that was true, then nobody would be reading Brene Brown with with a crazed enthusiasm like they are, you know, to talk about a topic that seems like, oh, no, don't go there. And she's been so discouraged and talked about like giving talks. They're like, could you just not talk about that vulnerability and shame bit? Could you just leave that out? And bless her for not agreeing to that because it has helped so many people to hear about these things that we thought, oh, no, we don't go into that. Um, yeah. I pretty much think if somebody has said to you, don't go into that, please go into it. <laughs> please do. Um, exactly. And I think your book is a perfect example of how much potential there is to sort of to actually change the world by going into it. So if you have an idea and you're listening to this and you have a cause that matters to you, please write about it. I think everyone stands to benefit. And thank you, Anu, so much for, for talking about your experience doing just that. Thank you so much. This is great. I'm so happy to be on. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.